morning, church. My name is Jess. And I'm Jimmy. And this morning we're going to be doing the Bible reading. So I'll be reading all of the first chapter of Esther 1, and then Jimmy will be reading Esther chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. So starting at Esther chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of pottery, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Menuhan, Biztha, Habona, Biktha, Abatha, Zitha, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Kashina, Sitha, Athma, Tarsus, Merez, Masina, and Menukhan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Menukhan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Menukhan proposed. 
He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. Reading from chapter 2, verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed... Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti, This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive in Jehoiachin, king of Judah, with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter and when her father, when her father and mother died. <clears throat> when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge over the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, 6 months with oil of myrrh and 6 months with perfume and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. Esther won the favour over everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts 
with royal liberality. Hi everyone, welcome to our first week in the book of Esther. There's a handout in the notes section which you can follow along that has an outline for today's uh, message. So question for you, uh, to think through, it's on the top of your handout there. Does it bother you that it often feels like God says nothing when we need him the most? You know, we often want straight answers and, and facts and reasons, tweet length replies to questions, but sometimes we just don't seem to get that, do we? C.S. Lewis summarizes quite well how we feel. Uh, in 1960, after the, de- after the death of his wife, he wrote these words. When you are happy, so happy, you have no sense of needing God. So happy that you're tempted to feel like his claims upon you as an interruption. And if you remember yourself and you turn to him and, and praise him, it, it feels you like you're welcome with open arms. But go to him when there's a need and when all the help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. Many of us feel that way today, I'm sure. And if that's you, I'm so glad that you've joined with us for church this morning. Maybe some of you are not yet believers in the Christian God and have wondered about God's silence or absence. Maybe tried to pray, but it hasn't worked out the way you've expected. Well, I do hope today and over the next five weeks uh, to help us wrestle with these questions and more as we explore the book of Esther. Why the book of Esther? Well, Esther encourages us to look at our lives and consider how God is at work behind the scenes, even though it may look like he's absent. The truth is God will never abandon his promises. Not only that, but Esther allows us to see how God works in all these times in the form of a story. You see, God teaches us through dramatic, real-life events in the pages of Scripture. In fact, stories are how we come to understand our life. We don't just live in a world full of facts, but of a narrative. We tell stories to describe who we are, what we do, our purpose, our dreams, our hopes. Each culture tells a story about their values and their history. Last week, for example, we remembered Anzac Day to keep the story alive of those who have fought and died for our country, for our freedoms. And this drama, this story in the Bible, it explains doctrine. Don't just imagine the Bible to be a textbook or a dictionary. That's not how God designed it to be. Ever wonder why you can't look up something topically? Well, God's interested in actually telling one big story about his character, our life, and how we find existence in him. He's inviting us to make his story our story. And so one way that we can explain God's sovereignty when he appears silent is to tell the story of Esther and see how in the drama God is at work. But not only is God seemingly silent in the book of Esther, he's actually absent from the text, as in totally, no mention of God at all in any shape or form. Now, scholar Karen Jobes says this, that for the first seven centuries of the Christian church, not one commentary was produced on the book of Esther. As far as we know, John Calvin never preached from Esther, nor did he include it among his commentaries. And today, most churches won't ever preach through these ten chapters. You look at the text, there's no sacrifices, no mention of the Torah, the temple, Jerusalem. No one has visions and there are no miracles. God is in fact the most mysterious person in this book. But you see, sitting in contrast to other exile literature, like Daniel, with his big flashy moments and visions, Esther shows us another way that God is at work in the silence. It's in the ordinary. It's with flawed people, foreign kings. 
For example, as Timothy Keller once said, when you see one of the ten plagues, you know that's God. But when King Xerxes gets drunk and starts bragging, you don't say, wow, there's God at work. But the book of Esther is trying to tell you, don't make that mistake. God is at work. Now, you'll receive some more detail about all of that in the background in this week's email. Uh, but let's dive in and see just how drama explains the doctrine in two scenes, Esther chapter 1 and 2. Scene run, scene one is in all of chapter one, and I've called it decadence, insanity, and me too. And then scene two is the first 18 verses, titled Rags, Riches, and God's Handiwork. So let's look at scene one. And so it starts off, and we meet a king called Xerxes. History remembers him as one of the three most formidable and ruthless Persian kings. One Greek historian uh, says this, he was the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings, an ambitious and ruthless ruler, a brilliant warrior and a jealous lover. We certainly see all of that here. As we read in verse 4, he throws a massive party for 180 days. Why? Just to show off his glory. He's the kind of guy that likes to flex, saying, see how awesome I am. He shows you his car his home, he drops the names of those he knows, he's self-obsessed, he's addicted to his own glory and his own Instagram page. Xerxes is the ultimate show-off. And in nine verses, we're left breathless by the scope of his glory, right down to his decor, even his dinner plates. It pulsates excess and decadence, sex, gluttony, power, chocolate, strawberries, material prosperity, glory and opulence. He is living like Gatsby, or maybe Gatsby is living like him. And the last we hear, and this really sets the scene, after this one big party, he then throws a smaller party, the more intimate one, lasting for just seven days this time. And the invitations read in verse 7 and 8, drink as much as you can. And then on the seventh day, when he's properly plastered, I'm sure, he demands the queen to be bore out in front of all of the men for her to be shown off. Now, the same word in verse 11 here that's used to describe the king wanting to display Vashti is also found in verse 4 when he displayed his vast wealth. You see, what he wants to do is exhibit his wife. He wants to parade her in front of drunken men to lust after and look at because it says she was lovely. Now, to her credit, Queen Vashti refuses verse 12. Some people do not have the choice. There is only evil put to them. And as you can imagine, this doesn't go too, down too well for the king who's had someone refuse him. Filled with wine, he is now filled with rage. When the bullies stood up to, they don't often like it. And misguided sexual desire is often accompanied with anger when it's refused or even if it's given into. So the king then turns to the boys club in verse 13 and 15 and says, guys, what am I going to do about this? He's not used to it. He wants to leverage the law now in a personal vendetta against the queen. And then we see just how much of a disproportionate view of themselves they all have here. They're worried the queen's behavior may set a precedent among all the other women and somehow the men will lose their authority and power and control they so enjoyed. Ever been in a workplace like that? So what do they do? Well, they make a law that says each man is the master of his house, verses 19 and 22. And Vashti? Well, she's no longer the queen. You can feel the dig, can't you? You said no once, so I'll, I'll say never again. You said no to me, I'll make your career and life miserable. No chance. And how that echoes down the annals of time resounding with women in every generation and culture. We're not facing anything new today with the Me Too movement. Just on this, it must be said that God doesn't condone violence against women. 
the text is carefully arranged to set the tone for the inner working of the Persian court so that we understand just how dire Esther's situation will be. This is a horrible thing to have happened to Vashti. And on the issue of submission and roles, please see that God doesn't take his cues from a Persian king. Xerxes uses the law to demand, but God urges in love. Christian men are not to be like a Persian king because God's good kingly rule is vastly different. The husband is to be worthy of submitting to, and that only happens when Jesus is his king, not him the king over his own little household. To say it another way, godly submission happens under the true king, not when someone grasps for power in his own home. And respect is the response of a wife towards a husband who loves her as Christ loved the church and died for her. And both live this way because they love Jesus. Can you see the difference? Love says, what can I do for you? Lust says, what can you do for me? And power wants it at any cost. So Meredith Storrs is a scholar and she says this about Esther. The writer wants us to see the cruelty and the violence in this foreign kingdom so we see God's kingdom in stark relief. He wants to show us the depths of despair to which God would raise up Esther for his good work. He wants us to feel pained by injustice so God's final justice will triumph. And as we stare deeply in the eyes of Esther's pain, perhaps even seeing the reflection of our own, the text points us forward to God's final sweet redemption through Christ. And so, scene one ends on a solemn note as a power play has altered the course of the Persian kingdom. It's pretty depressing stuff and sounds a lot like something Netflix would be producing. But it's not over yet. Look at chapter two, rags, riches, and God's handiwork, the first 18 verses. So we start off and the the headache of the binge drinking wears off and the king starts to see with a little bit of clarity now. He's emotionally unstable. Yet he's sorrowful about his decision, verse 1. Now, it could be that potentially three years have happened between chapters 1 and 2 as well. And so he remembers that Vashti is no longer the queen, and he wants something done about it. So, turns to the boys' club, the advisors put forward a solution, verse 2 to 4, and he likes it very much. And what sounds like an ancient virgin of Tinder, all the best-looking women, the virgins, the singles, the never-marrieds, that go to the palace, they're going to spend 12 months being basted in spices and oils to look their best so that each one could spend one night with the king. Then, after he'd slept with them, he would pick a queen. Now, our culture's guiding rule in all things sexual seems to be it's all about consent. That's the line in the sand for us. But remember, this is in Australia in 2020. This is Persia in 450 BC. What's more... In Persia, it wasn't just women who were subject to the king's fancies. For example, 500 young boys were castrated every year just to serve in the Persian courts. Made eunuchs, consent not required. Can you see, can you feel the type of place the Persian Empire was? It wasn't a nice place to be. Now at this point, in verse 5, a new character is introduced for us, Mordecai. He's a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin living in the citadel. That there is the only time we see a clear link to the rest of the Old Testament. Now, even Morde- now Mordecai, sorry, he had a cousin called Esther. He brought her up as his own daughter when her father and mother had died, verse 7. Now, one of the most interesting features and facts we learn about Esther is that she is physically very beautiful. Now, in Hebrew narrative, the way a character is first described introduces and is introduced, sorry, plays an important part in setting up the role they're going to have in the rest of the drama. Now, she's living with Mordecai. That means she's not married, right? 
that's going to set up what's to come. The king's looking for beautiful virgins. Esther is one of them. So she's caught up with many other young women. She's taken to the harem, separate living area just for the women who are going to sleep with the king. And she's going to be made beautiful there for 12 months or more beautiful. Now, it's interesting. The story never stops to give us the character's emotional temperature along the way. We don't know how she felt. The narrator speaks in the passive voice here, meaning it's as if the characters are just swept up in this story that the king is, is, is doing, and they have no control. And then for the next 12 months, Mordecai visits her, verse 10, and seeks her welfare, verse 11. And in that time, he reminds us, don't tell of, her, of your nationality. We don't know why he says that. Obviously, he's a Jew, so is she. Maybe there was anti-Semitic tones in the Persian Empire at this time, but there's a warning coming out here. Your nationality, Esther, it may put you in danger. And in fact, next week, we're going to see how indeed it does. And then in verse 15, after a whole year of getting ready, Esther goes to the king, sleeps with him, pleases him so much physically. Verse 17, a public holiday is proclaimed in her honor. A huge feast is thrown. She becomes queen. And that ends scene two. The narrative's gone full circle, right? We began with a feast in 1 verse 3. We ended with 1 in 2.18. In between, we've seen exactly what Mordecai and Esther will be up against in the coming chapters. The Persian courts are dangerous. The king is unstable with a desire for parties and power and pleasure. A queen has been dethroned for not bowing to his drunken request. Esther has risen to royalty through a great sexual encounter. And Mordecai is positioned as an influential character to come. The stage is set. But what do we make of God, our most elusive character here? Well, the author's reminding us that God is sovereign in all the just kind of happening coincidental events. Notice how the narrative tells us what didn't happen as much as what did. So, for example, 1 verse 12, Vashti refused to come to the king, and that explains why there's a harem with beautiful women. In 2.7, Esther doesn't have a father or mother, explaining why Mordecai and their strong bond and why she takes his advice. In 2.10, Esther did not reveal her identity as a Jew, setting up the much later revelation of her nationality to the king, and why other characters don't like Mordecai. In 2.14, we learn that the king uh, summoned Esther back. And so you see, without telling us what didn't happen, the author would not have been able to tell us what did happen. What I'm saying is, it's not that the events in chapter 1 guaranteed Esther would be exalted. Rather, it could not have happened without them. And my point is this. He says, that is a way of cementing God's sovereignty in all the happenings of Esther. Here's the thing. Though these events, which at first don't look or feel like God's even present, in ways we can't see or grasp, Esther shouts to us that God is sovereign, even if he seems silent or absent. So you see, the debilitating silence of God is actually part of the story of Esther, just like silence is sometimes part of your story too. But it's so hard to see in the moment, is it? As I speak with so many of you during the week, I feel a great sense of instability for many of you. Some of you are just so afraid of the virus that you are just running here and there, anxious up to the bones, functioning at this level all the time. Some of you have lost hours at work and are confused as to the government's support and aren't sure about what to do with and what the next week will bring. And you're struggling under the weight of work at the moment. Your homes are in disorder and chaotic. You're not sure if the kids are coming or going. You feel so isolated. You think about church, you think about how we're online, we're not meeting, I'm lonely, I I miss, I really value relationships, and how do we function as the people of God and as a human in this particular time? Yet into the noise, 
It feels a bit like Esther 1 and 2, doesn't it? God is silent, the world's spinning. Does anyone hear me? Is God doing anything? And Esther reminds us that even if we can't see God, we can trust him. Why? Because he is sovereign. His promises aren't going anywhere. Your life is not left up to chance, to fate, the universe, to bad luck. It rests in a sovereign God's hands. His planning is far more superior to anyone else's navigation skills, someone said in the messenger group this week. It's been said that Esther is one of the longest sustained meditations on the sovereignty and providence of God in the whole Bible. It's just one long illustration of Romans 8.28, which says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. To say it another way, God is advancing his purpose even when he's not making an appearance. And is not that the very real situation we find ourselves in today? Here's the thing, if we can't see God at work, we must not conclude he's not working. Esther teaches us, in God's providence, he's working for the salvation of his people because our hope is not simply in the here and now, but in one day arriving at a feast, at a table of the true glorious king who gave up his life to make us worthy of a title we didn't deserve to earn. And you can trust that God to navigate you to get there. I have a question for you on your handout. You may like to chat about this over morning tea with those around you or in a Zoom chat later on today. Um, So what comfort then does it bring to know that God is sovereign over your life? Finally then, the Esther story is also a reversal of what's expected. Appearances are not what they seem. You see, there's a better king that Esther points to, and it's not Xerxes. The Persian culture, somewhat like ours, measured is was measured by appearances, status. We love egos stroked. We look at people, we evaluate them by their wealth and power, beauty, sexuality, think married at first sight style. And just as Xerxes flexed his muscles in power and glory and authority, There was a moment many years later in which people expected the power of God to be flexed, to be on display. But God's true king, the true good king who never abuses us, he's not what we expect to find in our saviour. In in the seemingly cruel and horrific events of this king's crucifixion, it felt like God wasn't at work at all. By all appearances, he was a joke of a king. He had no palace, no glory, no feasting, no decadence. But this was a great reversal of what we expect, you see. In what made God look weak and powerless, we find that at the cross is actually where the power of God is on display. And this Jesus, he came to be our king, to be our sovereign, to lead us in all the silence and uncertainty of life as we journey on towards a new destination into his kingdom. You know, Xerxes only chose the most beautiful at the expense of others, but Jesus at the expense of himself makes us lovable by choosing you and me to be adopted into his kingdom, not through a morally questionable action, but by King Jesus dying, cleaning the stain of filth that has happened to us from other people sinning against us and forgiving our own sins too. And it's that great love which makes us lovely. You see, just like Queen Vashti stood up to evil, Jesus stands up to the evil that's in you and me. He overcame it facing exile, distress that she did, to rescue us from a far greater threat than losing a position of power. And that's Jesus, the only one who never misused his power, but set it aside to go to a cross to redeem his people. And he is the king who invites you by grace into his kingdom, who is never distracted, he's never off drinking when we need him the most. 
And so my final question on the handout is this. How does knowing that Jesus is the good king and he has all authority, how does that give you comfort and hope? And then as you think through your week, how might you share Jesus and his message to those around you who don't yet know him? And so then we've gone, that's Esther 1. We've seen the power of the king. We've realized that actually there's a far better king. We've seen Esther and Mordecai positioned in a place of influence. We've realized that God is sovereign over all those events, just as he's sovereign over your life and my life. May we take the wonderful truth of God's sovereignty, his promise to never leave or forsake us, that he is at work in the midst of this for his glory and our good. May we hold on to that as we cling to our king this week. Have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you again real soon for Esther chapter 2.